Hi, I'm Brent Stafford, and this is RegWatch by RegulatorWatch.com. For everyone, there's nothing in life more certain than death and taxes. Yet if you are a smoker, the risk of death and pain of taxation increases by orders of magnitude, often thanks to ill-conceived government action. Case in point, the United States of America and the growing hostility towards safer nicotine products such as vaping. In just a few short years, anti-vaping campaigns, flavor bans, and punitive tax measures have pushed countless vapors back to smoking during a time when government professes a duty to keep the public safe. Joining us today to talk about the U.S. approach to vaping and its macabre commitment to death and taxes is the writer, researcher, and policy analyst, Lindsay Stroud from the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. Lindsay, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Brent, for having me. It's actually quite incredible that we've not yet had you on the show. Yeah, I know. I remember meeting you at the Safada conference back in, I want to say, 2018. Yeah, or maybe even 16. But I know for sure uh, during the rally in D.C., we spent some time together. We did, yes. And I refused to go on camera. I was kind of like avoiding the whole media where all y'all were set up. <laughs> well, it's awesome that we have you now. And thank you for being our guinea pig as we're moving back into some live coverage this year. And hopefully everything will go fine with our broadcast tonight. Right off the bat, I'd like to say that I'm not particularly anti-government. I'm anti-incompetent government. I'm pro-government to the point that if the goal is to help citizens live a happier and healthier life, policies should advance that. But when we look at what's going on in the U.S. and, of course, in other countries, Canada and worldwide, but U.S. is our focus tonight. When you look at what's going on in the U.S., you got to wonder, are they really making decisions that are in the benefit of people? Definitely not in terms of tobacco harm reduction. Uh, if you look at the states, um, you've got, what, four states now that have flavor bans going on, um, including Massachusetts, uh, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey. Um, California's got one on hold. You've got other states. Well, Connecticut just had one that went through. Uh, you've got a flavor ban hearing in Maine tomorrow. Vermont has looked at it. Um, and then you've got the whole debacle of what's going on now at the federal level uh, with the hat trick, so to speak, uh, as far as the uh, menthol ban that came out from the FDA, the Biden administration looking at doing nicotine caps, and then the uh, Democratic congressmen that have pushed forward with a uh, federal excise tax on vaping products as well as increasing uh, the cigarette tax. So um, it's just kind of lovely. Uh, 2020, 2019 was really terrible after Eve Ally. And thankfully, like I shouldn't sit here and say it's COVID helped with the vapors as far as like nothing happening so much last year. But now they kind of came out full force and, is, you know, trying to. So are you, with vaping. are you saying then that as COVID begins to wane, the forces of public health and, and the nonprofit health groups are turning their their attention back to vaping? Well, they, they already had turned their attention towards vaping during COVID, um, even though the data was kind of showing that like nicotine users and, and cigarette smokers were really underrepresented. Um, I know I looked at it in May of last year with the with um, the CDC, for example, was reporting on vaping related lung injuries or not vaping. Sorry, they're reporting on COVID cases and they had actually comorbidities and like only 2% of them were smokers. CDC quit reporting on that, like after that one month. Um, and you've got all these studies that are out, um, but they 
tight as that, but that kind of waned off. And so now it's just like, as I, we're getting back to legislative sessions and taxes, I think, kind of come out because of COVID that they're trying to recuperate money, um, unfortunately, you know, by taxing people that have quit smoking. So for our audience who don't know what a policy analyst does, let's spend some little bit of time unpacking that. And of course, you were with Heartland previously. You've, you've got a lot of experience in this area. I do. Um, like Heartland in 2016 kind of threw me on it. Um, and I just fell in love with all the vapors. It's the one of the few industries that you see attacked at the state, local or the local, state and federal level. Um, and, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be able to just kind of do the numbers on things. So that's what I... I, you know, what I tell people when I have to explain what working at a think tank is, is I write research papers and tell policymakers what's up. Um, but we do it, I, at least at TPA, you know, it's not so much as far as making claims. It's just kind of like, here are the numbers. Um, and that's what I've been kind of focusing on uh, lately in the past six months. Yeah. And so you wrote some, you've, you've got something that's on uh, on the bench right now that's about to get published. Why don't you tell our audience about that? Well, it's a continuation. Well, yeah, so I'm working on um, if everyone saw the I've been doing some like 50 state analyses um, and just looking at I took the data from the behavioral risk behavioral risk factor surveillance survey, which is done every year by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It's actually the same data that the campaign for tobacco free kids and the truth initiative uh, uses on their own websites when they're looking at the percent of smokers in a given state. So I went through all that data and looked at like the different groups. I looked at like the younger adults smoking. I looked at like education, um, income level. And so I, what I did at first was I had this theory going on that e-cigarettes helped reduce lower, like reduce smoking rates among lower adults or young or among. <laughs> you can tell I'm getting all confused because I've been doing too much of these analyses, <laughs> but um among uh, young adults, which are defined as 18 to 24 years old. Um, and actually in my analysis, which was 50 states plus DC, 46 states of this actually held true as far as looking at the t- uh, the 10 years after um, e-cigarettes market emergence, which is defined as 2009 to 2012. So I looked at 2009 to 2019 rates. And then I also looked at the 10 years after the MSA had came out, you know, after all the states sued all the tobacco companies. Um, 1998 through 2008. And I saw greater rates of reduction among young adult smoking rates in the 10 years after e-cigarettes market emergence that I saw in the 10 years after suing the tobacco companies. And actually in some states, you saw like an increase in the 10 years after suing the tobacco companies um, versus the 10 years after e-cigarette market emergence. Um, But I was really kind of looking at this data and the whole narrative of that they all say that youth vaping leads to youth smoking, and it's just entirely untrue. Um, it's, if anything, it ha- has helped decrease smoking even more so among young adults. Um, and I also compared, you know, youth vaping rates at the same time. And you're also seeing, you know, among youth, the smoking is at its lowest levels ever. Um, if you look at like 1995 high school students, at least 70% had tried a combustible cigarette. And like 50% of them were like current smokers, which is defined as using at least once on once in the past month prior. What do you think of that uh, once in the past 30 days measure? They, they seem to really, you know, hang their hat on that when it comes to vaping and it, it doesn't take into account experimental use. 
Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, it's very terrible, especially if they're going to do it that way, then they should actually like then you should be surveying them once a month and seeing how those numbers hold up because you're right. The experimental. OK, like so this kid tried it that he happened to try it that month that he got surveyed, you know, but the 11 months of the other, you know, part of the year, he didn't try it. Um, and that's not being factored in the survey as far as current use. So, but th the CDC does really do well on their, um, with the youth risk behavior survey um, for most of the states that they do ask about frequent and daily use. And those are the numbers I try to go like look into um, to show like, okay, yeah, these are your kids that are addicted, but they're still way lower than what they were in 1997. I mean, than what, kids were using combustible cigarettes. I mean, that was over 10% of kids on average from all the states. So, so that, you know, that brings a, a good question uh, that I have to mind here. And that is, is there data that you trust coming from either FDA or CDC with regard to smoking? Um, I like the I like the behavioral risk factors, and, th and that might just because it's easier to access. Um, I do kind of trust it, but at the same time, not really. Um, the youth risk behavior survey could be a lot better. Um, like some of the states actually do ask with, you know, what's the reason why you use e-cigarettes? Um, I think there's about like seven states. Don't quote me on that. That actually do like you know factor in those questions, um, and overwhelmingly, you know, comes friends or family members or other um, flavor. You know, overwhelmingly does come as like third down the list. I would like it for all states to just have a unique, like, have a standard survey that you could just do. You know, that ask they all ask the same questions. Um, and with the the youth risk behavior survey, you can't ask, access that from the CDC. You have to actually go to the state website and usually their health department or their education department and then you'll get it and it's like a pdf um and the cdc behavioral risk factor surve surveillance survey is good for like smoking rates but they've only asked about e-cigarettes among adults for 2016 and 2017. so, so they're they not so solid on them. the they're not so solid on the vaping side yeah, I it's just, I don't know why. Um, and there was like really there, they didn't really ask it the same way. It looks like that they were asking tobacco because when you start breaking down the numbers, it's just it's it's just really weird. I don't really like they. It's just like they don't give any credit to e-cigarettes at all um, to even pay attention to it. It's the one thing if you go through, if you go to uh, BRFS online and you go look at the different categories that they have that you can look up, like e-cigarettes is the one that has like the least amount of dates or, you know, surveys done on it. So, I mean, if a you know, simple question and simple answer, if there is one, um, is the public getting the right information that's accurately describing uh, youth usage of uh, vaping in the United States? Um, yes and no. Um, I think that right now the public is getting over exaggerated because nobody's really looking at the numbers. And if they do look at the numbers, they exaggerate them. Um, I've sat there in testimonies hearing other people were quoting the same data source, but the way that they quote it, they break it down and they don't give if they offer you like the multiple like, OK, ever tried current use to find us once in the past 30 months and daily use, they don't ever, you know, they go with the current use and try to like, you know, 
all these kids are currently using e-cigarettes and like making it seem like an epidemic when it's really not when you break down the numbers. Um, it's, but most people are lazy and there's a lot more like anti-vaping people that get a lot more credit than I think we do, even when we go give them the numbers. Um, I saw in Connecticut with a lawmaker when I was testifying against their flavor ban, which took like 12 hours that I was on, you know, waiting for. And this guy was just completely like not happy with me and questioned my numbers. And I was just like, I'll print them out for you. I'm not trying to lie to you, but um, you know, I know you're getting fed something from the other side, but this is, these are the numbers. <laughs> these are the numbers. Um, I want yeah. us to uh, take a moment and to talk about the menthol issue because that's what's, you know, huge news. I know it's about smoking, but it is connected to flavors and the e-cigarette battles all wrapped up. Um, in around what they're doing here on menthol. So first, let me ask you, what are they doing and how does it link to vaping? Well, they are responding to a citizen's petition um, that was going to, FDA had to respond to it um, that was urgent, was calling for them to get rid of menthols. Um, so backup history, 2009, all the other flavors were banned from cigarettes. Um, so, I mean, easiest way to explain it to people, cloves, you know, remember cloves. Um, and so menthol wasn't included with that. And it's funny because you look at like campaign for tobacco free kids, they're the ones that were urging um, menthol not to be included in the 2009 one. Um, so it's going to be a, like a hard process for them. I mean, even the e-cigarette deeming regulations took a while to actually like come about. And you can see too, like once they've been implemented, they, the FDA is still having a problem with them. So it's going to go through the rulemaking process. They're going to have to come out with the proposed rule, it's going to have to be subject to, you know, public comment. Um, and then it's probably going to be litigated against by the tobacco companies. Another tidbit, because um, this came out this past week, um, you know, the graphic warning, the cigarette warnings that they were supposed to do that was like required of them in 2006. It's another court case on there and it, it looks like it won't come out till 2022. Um, but it looks like the, I mean, like I said, the the Biden administration and and the Democrats, you know, have been between the nicotine proposal that was floated around the week a week prior, the menthol ban, and then also the the tax. Um, you know, they're really going after just smoking, um, but they're also disguising the menthol ban under the cloak of like you know racial. There's racial undertones, um, which is ironic because. <laughs> I mean, especially like all the racial undertones really come, you know, stem from George Floyd. Um, George Floyd, you know, was killed by a police officer after the police officer responded to him using a counterfeit bill to buy a pack of cigarettes. We had 2014 with Eric Garner in New York City that was killed by police again because they were responding to him selling loose cigarettes. There's another case on there. You see illicit cigarettes all the time, especially in the States and these like smoke shops, and they tend to be minority ran smoke shops. Um, so it's just banning this. It's not so, and they keep emphasizing that, you know, you're not going to be charged if you're in possession of it, but they fail to realize that like, in order to be possession of it, you have to go buy it from an illicit dealer and that's who you're going to target. Um, so, and once again, those, you know, George Floyd, he bought it with a counterfeit cigarette. Uh, Eric Garner was selling it. They, they were not apprehended for just having cigarettes. 
you know, they were, you know, put in police custody because of the act of buying the purchasing act of it. Um, so it's just, it's going to be a mess. I, it's terrible policy. Lindsay, that's fascinating. I've not yet heard that comment about any, even singularly uh, on any one of those events. And to put that all together, I mean, I hate to use the word fascinating, but it, it speaks to something like if you're going to create a black market around cigarettes, here's potentially what can happen when something becomes illicit. Yes. Well, even um, Eric Garter's mother in 2019, when New York City was looking at um, banning menthol cigarettes, Eric Garner's mother, as well as Trayvon's Martin, they penned a letter to the city council urging them not to do it because of what it would mean for black communities. So, and yeah, the, 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 the I love the, I, I, like I said, I just love the whole like, oh, we're not going to, you're not going to be in trouble for possessing it. It's like, well, how do you get it? Right. Well, and it, well, I mean, it creates a, a black market. It creates an illicit uh, structure that people then interact with. That is amazing. You know, it's, so it's a social justice issue. Vaping is a social justice issue. We've been saying that for years. We actually have uh, Cliff Douglas, um, who's the former vice president of tobacco control for the American Cancer Society, coming on the show. We've already shot the interview. It was an amazing interview that we've done. And he spent a bunch of time talking about the social justice issue, as well as what we have up on the screen here. And you've mentioned it. The FDA wants to lower nicotine in all cigarettes, which will make smokers smoke more. How is this a good idea? I mean, I know for a fact that if somebody gave me a light cigarette and I was still smoking my two packs a day, I'd be smoking three packs a day. Exactly. Well, exactly. And also like, I, I, I'm not even more, I like, I'm more worried about the black market responding to it. And these, it's like the Evali scare that came out of America was due to illicit, you know, products that are illicit because they, and they were found in states that don't have recreational marijuana so it just like you're going to create a demand for people to go buy these black market cigarettes that aren't even regulated, um, you know, like because they want to get their nicotine fix. Um, I, I, I just I know people that smoked it, even reds and like, you know, lights don't have that much nicotine content, you know, difference. But I know people who can't smoke, you know, a red or a light, depending on their preference. So the the lower nicotine and especially just requiring them, it's really bad. Like if. It would be cool if you did a sensible policy where you require cigarette manufacturers to have lower nicotine, you know, as well as their full nicotine and let them have it in various strengths instead of just automatically forcing them to lower it. It's like you, it's like taking all the southern states and telling them they have to go have near beer again. You know, I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a disaster. It's a total disaster. So, I mean, you're, you're looking at the policy making. What do you think is driving these policies? Youth vaping. And I don't care. Like, I, I got, when I wrote, I wrote against the nicotine, um, Biden's nicotine proposal last week. And I had the, the, one of the lower nicotine companies like come after me and stuff. And then I've seen you know, some people are like, oh, with the menthol ban, it means they're not going to go after flavors. And it's like, no, these are the first steps that they're going to do to go after the e-cigarette market. Because they have to at this point, you're starting to see, like I've been noticing in letters to the editor from like, you know, health professionals that they are not so much going after e-cigarettes being as harmful as cigarettes anymore. I think they've gotten past that one. Um, now it's nicotine being addictive. 
And so I just think that they're just picking apart. And, you know, if they can attack cigarettes, then they can just by precedent um, that they can go after e-cigarettes at that point. Now, talk to us a little bit about what's going on with regards to the federal vape tax initiative. Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, they they still haven't dropped it, um, but it's supposed to be parity. So everything's like they're going to increase the cigarette tax, the other tobacco tax. And it looks like they're going to probably apply the OTP to e-cigarette products. Um, and there's once again, there's just still no like there's no official rule like legislation out on it. Um, it'll be interesting to see if they're going to you know, and some of the states have done really smart taxes if you're going to tax e-cigarettes, which I'm completely against. But if you're going to do it, like there should be a bifurcated tax, um, you know, disposables, the pod systems that are, you know, more in line with the children should probably be taxed at a higher rate than open systems. But you also taxes are so hard on e-cigarettes. Like you tax the battery. Do you tax the hardware? Um, do you tax, you know, if it, does it contain nicotine? Um, there's also, you know, a, a wholesale tax. There's a disposable, you know, you're going to be subject to a higher tax versus, you know, because you're throwing it away, you're going to be paying for it all the time versus if you go buy the hardware device that you only get taxed once. So you've got to take a really interesting approach to how you tax it. So it's going to be, I'm still waiting for the text to come out and how it's going to look for how they're going to tax e-cigarettes. I think we've all been kind of bracing for it. Um, you know, I mean, I'm completely against it, especially like this. The, the, nobody uses the tobacco monies, you know, and I just have a problem with like taxing people who quit smoking. <laughs> so let's uh, let's I'm going to have to requeue that up here. I just had it on the tax side. But what you did this amazing uh, piece called Tobacco and Vaping 101 a 50 yeah. state analysis. Why don't you do a lead in to that and I'll pull that up here on the screen. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, back into that was like a, when a with the looking at the efficacy of e-cigarettes, it also included um, analysis on the cigarette tax revenue um, and uh, tobacco settlement revenue, as well as how much money was dedicated to tobacco control funding through the years. Um, and it was kind of scary. Like I've always known that it was very little, but when you actually start putting it into graphs and seeing it, you're kind of just like, what just happened here? Um, I mean, let me call up Connecticut that wants to, you know, has just banned flavored e-cigarettes. They've in 2016, 17 and no, 17, 18, 19, zero dollars towards tobacco control funding uh, programs. Um, and yet they, you know, collected like a billion dollars and what I call cigarette tax monies. Um, so it's just kind of amazing. Like there's only like three states that kind of did well, but, and the analyses that all of them have graphs that, you know, have the cigarette tax revenue, the tobacco or the tobacco control funding, as well as the settlement payments. And it's all kind of compared throughout the years. So you can see how little and there's some states um, because of how the graphs were done. You just can't see how much they spent in tobacco control funding because it's just so little. How so? How do I get to the graphs? It's down here, right? So pick a state. Yeah, so pick, pick a state. Um, well, you pick a go, state. You pick a state. Go. Well, go to West Virginia. Okay. They're pretty bad too. And there's that Virginia, did, West Virginia, right, right. there. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, you're going to download the PDF. Okay. 
And these were a nightmare to make, okay? They're four months in the making. Um, and then it's going to be down like in page six, I want to say. Okay. Is where the graphs are at. So you okay. have then for each one of these states, you've got, it's a template that you've done at least in terms of being able to, you know, collate all the data. And that's what I liked about this is that you can actually compare states fairly easily on data that you can't just fairly easily compare on your own unless you're a report. <laughs> yeah, report it was a lot of spreadsheets. Yeah, that's right. So, okay, <laughs> so walk us through this then here. So, okay, so it starts with adult smoking rates, um, compares them because the data for the BRFS goes back to 1995. So I compared, you know, how much it lo how much it was lowered. Um, and for people who are really the math whizzes, I did look at population changes to compare how many fewer smokers there were. So you can see, like, where it doesn't add up sometimes, it, it does make sense that it is lower smokers um, because there's more people in their population. And then you got youth tobacco and vaping rates. So I just did the most recent youth vaping because that's what they're all, you know, that's a sexy topic. And then I put in the big one is just like, you know, yep, that's. And if they have it with the ever trying, um, not all of them did, but um, most of them did current use and then daily use. And then I go through the um, smoking rates of combustible cigarettes and I compare them to the oldest data they have to do the numbers to show how much it's decreased. Excellent. So because obviously what we're talking about here is that vaping is getting no love from the regulators and from anybody for potentially contributing to the lowering of the teen smoking. Exactly. Yeah. All right. when they're all like, oh yeah, it just leads to more smoking. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I'll make sure you know that it doesn't. Yeah, like how could they say that it's a gateway when the numbers just keep collapsing? In Canada, the youth smoking rate for teens is almost statistically not countable. <laughs> oh, that's impressive. Yeah, we're that's not there yet. In some states, we are kind of there, but in some states, we're not. So let's just look at the cigarette tax revenue between 2000 and 2019 in West Virginia, as an example, collected an estimated $1.958 billion during yep. the same 19-year period. The Mountain State increased the cigarette tax eight times. Oh, that's <laughs> so. Do you have that? Like all the tax increases for each one of the states? I do. Oh, I do. I, I have a spreadsheet for every one of the states. Like, and I've told people if they want it, they can have it. <laughs> like, oh, oh. very messy. But yeah, the one thing I was looking at with that was to show that you know cigarette taxes are um, unreliable. That, you know, yeah, you had an increase in the first couple of years, but, you know, you have less people smoking. So this is steadily decreased throughout time. Right. So between 99 and 2019, in the 20 years, West Virginia collected an estimated $1.95 billion. Right. And then you've got the master settlement agreement yep. numbers. Woo. Yeah. Yeah. And they collected one, almost $1.4 billion in um, the M uh, MTS, yeah, MSA payments. I see a mistake on there. This is me and one other person editing this. So now I'm like, oh, I got to go back and fix that PDF right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't tell anybody about it and nobody will know. So, um, okay. So they received, so West Virginia received $1.3 billion from the master settlement agreement. So yeah. that's like, we're, so we're looking at like almost... Well, we're looking at basically three, almost four billion dollars. One, yeah, two, yeah, yeah, about that. Three over three billion, yeah, yeah. 
And then, yeah, they only spent $99 million in state funds between 2000 and 2019 on tobacco control programs. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, so perfect, perfect, clear example of um, we're going to tax you and take more money and we're going to spend it on tobacco control efforts. Yep. Uh, master settlement agreement. We're going to take billions from the industry and we're going to spend that on tobacco control initiatives. And in the end, they're spending one or two percent of it. Yeah. Well, in West Virginia's governor, like introduced like a 75% tax or something or like 75, no 75. What was it? I don't know. It was going to end up being like a hundred dollars for a hundred milliliter bottle or something. It was ridiculous. Uh, and he was actually doing it as a property uh, or no, an income tax swap. That so is, they're a- eyeing the vapors right now, which is like, well, we need our money. And it's not, they're not even, when you see vapor taxes being introduced, they're not even earmarking it towards cessation or prevention programs. Um, and that just pisses me off. Yeah. I mean, and I, you know, I don't want to be partisan at all on this. So, but let me just ask is, have you noticed, is there a difference between say a Republican or a democratic government? And trust me, people, I don't care what the answer is. I'm just looking, (laughs) looking for the information. Is there something, or is it the same on both sides? Flavor bans tend to be more Republican taxes. I've seen pretty, they're, they're not all the same. Like some, some States are really staunchly against taxes. Um, some of them you kind of do see some bipartisanship with, um, especially when they're looking just to get revenue. But right right now it's so weird, you know, because it, like it's a combination of the kids and funding, um, why they're pushing forward with taxes. Um, I, I, for Indiana, I believe that Indiana, like uh, what was introduced was a cigarette tax. They haven't had a cigarette tax increase since like 2007. And they have some of the lowest cigarette tax and taxes in the country, um, and they ended up out with a ten percent or ten cent per milliliter tax, and I think it all just goes to the general fund. Um, but the cigarette tax got killed. So, is- cigarette, yeah, got killed. What What is the worst state, in your opinion, so that we could go to that that for whatever egregiousness that we should highlight? Minnesota, just by text only, Minnesota's got that 95% tax, but it doesn't, lawmakers use it always in other states, use it as an example about like how high that tax is, but they don't understand the way that that's applied and like how many of the businesses like get around it. And maybe I shouldn't sit here and say that out loud. So the Minnesota lawmakers don't understand about that. Um, but yeah, they've got like in the, oh, they, it's not the cigarette tax, but the, the, they got a 95, I don't have the vape taxes on there, but they've got a 95%. It's weird how they calculate it. And I can't even describe it myself. Um, the other worst state that did a tax was probably a vapor tax would be Pennsylvania that did the 40% wholesale floor tax, um, in 2016. And a third of their businesses shut down because they required the tax for every, all the product, like everything that was in their inventory. Right. They taxed what was already on the shelf. Yeah. And that was like a bad one. Like the bad, the best state for vapor taxes, (laughs) which they all suck if they have a vapor tax, um, would probably be Washington state. They've got a bifurcated tax. I forget the actual numbers on it, um, but their reason, their quote unquote reasonable. Um, there's no such thing as reasonable tax. Um, libertarian to the heart on that one. All taxes are bad. Uh, so, but 
Yeah, and then uh, and for cigarette taxes, I can tell you all those. New York, Connecticut, anyone with the 435, the highest taxes in the country, pretty bad. Death, also have the highest smuggling rate. And death and taxes, that is the title of uh, this episode. Because And it's striking because the more you tax, the more likely a vapor is going to go back to smoking. Um, and, it, and it really is the taxes are the death of you, for real. Yeah, there was a uh, a paper done about Minnesota's tax, actually, and that like 10%, they're missing out on 10% of the population, of the smoking population because of that tax. So when we first started covering this issue, uh, there wasn't a lot of the taxes yet in place. I mean, we're, we're into our sixth year now. So early on in 2015, uh, when the taxes, you know, scares were starting to come out. Um, I've often wondered whether or not if the vaping industry missed an opportunity to like be wholeheartedly on board with some of that, um, because if they were getting, if the governments had their hands in the coffers early on, maybe it wouldn't have spun out of control. I know now that that's just total horseshit on thinking on my part, but I just wonder if you, if you've thought about that or, or if your mind has even changed on that in some manner. Well, I always say to people with lawmakers, well, one, when you go to talk, okay, never go on pub, never go on record. Don't ever sit here and say anything on record. But you go and meet with your lawmakers and you give them three options. Here's the worst thing you can do. Here's what we really want you to do. And here's somewhere in the middle. And and then you also just tell them, you know, like especially if they're coming up with a flavor ban or something that's really bad for your business, like I'm never going to support that on record. If you have a good enough relationship with your lawmakers, they're kind of going to understand it. Um, and like, I understand where the vaping industry understands to give, you know, that they're going to have to give a little bit. Um, but you just never go on record for it. <laughs> My only like advice to everybody you just never go. I've sat there and because I can never go on record for it for the companies that I'm well, for the, the who I'm representing. Um, but I have no problem working behind the scenes with lawmakers to give them something that once again is quote unquote unreasonable. Unre you, you know, so. you sound like a lawyer. You sound like a lawyer. Uh, I've learned it a little bit. I'm not a lobbyist. I swear. Okay. Lobbyists pick sides. I, I, you know, I, I, I love my job because I get to, I, you know, I work with both like on cigarettes and vaping issues. I try to defend both cigarette smokers and vapors if you know, and, other consumer issue areas. So um, I've met with lobbyists and I'm always like, well, what side of the aisle are you working on today? And I've sat there and there was a state where one day it was a tax on vapor products and the next day it was an online sales ban. And this lobbyist, the tax day comes out, he's against it. The day later with the online sales ban, he's for it. And I like that, like both days I came out and spoke against them because I'm working, you know, for the consumers and not some business that, you know, the problem with a lot of the vaping regulations really does come down to the government, you know, picking the winners and losers um, of this industry. Well, and that's almost pretty much uh, exactly what happens anytime a government comes in and regulates a market for the first time. Yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah, I mean, I, there's not too many examples of that in my lifetime with a massive industry that's, you know, very important, you know, potential to save lives and so forth. And, and the government is, is so um, intransigent about it. I, before we leave the states, um, I want to do California only because there's got to be a certain, I mean, it's California, right? So I'd like to just see what the numbers 
look like here. So walk us oh, yeah. through, walk us through old California here. I know it's not the oh. sunshine state. That's Florida, but I keep thinking, uh, what is California? It's a golden, a golden, it's a golden state. state. <laughs> yeah, I always mess it up and call it the Golden Gate State, but right, right. State, yeah. Well, I lived in Los Angeles for you know close to five years, so I mean I've gotten oh. a bit of California in me, and I'm trying to be trying to get it out like the crying game now for yeah. God bless you. I would never live in California ever. <laughs> so let's walk through it. Well, they have the. I know they have the lowest rates of smoking. Um, like really low. Yeah. With 10% of adults. Yeah. Um, and that's been reduced pretty well too. Um, if you, yeah, 35.5%. Yeah. So among like the total adult population, um, breaking down, they actually, they're like the second state that spends the most too on MSA. So they spend the MSA money. Yeah, not as much as they should, but, you know, according to the CDC, they give more than other states. But, yeah, they've got a lot. Like, yeah, they got $20.5 billion in cigarette taxes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, just because of their, because they're so huge. Population, yeah. Yeah. Now, I, I guess, you know, the fact is, though, is that maybe them not spending the MSA money on tobacco control is a good thing because they'd just be pl- plowing that through into anti-vaping. Well, they, well, they, they do actually, it's not in here, but there's, um, uh, San Francisco, LA and San Diego actually are earmarked. Yeah. They've gotten $17.4 billion in MSA payments, but, um, yeah, those cities actually they're earmarked, um, the MSA payments. Hmm. They are like a certain part of it. I don't know exactly how it works. I stumbled upon that years ago. Yeah. So they spend five point, they've spent 5.6%. So they've spent um two billion dollars right so the percentage is low but the dollars are higher yeah now if you go down actually because there's the numbers i did do it in the summary where i do instead of having the percentages i just do the numbers so yeah so you got they'd spent two billion dollars towards tobacco control programs and then they've received 20.5 billion dollars and 15.9 billion and taxes and settlement payments respectively so very little, seeing that they've gotten almost $36 billion, well, over $36 billion, and they've only spent $2 billion. And then, yeah, the e-cigarette smoking rates, um, the 10 years after suing tobacco companies uh, among 18 to 24-year-olds, the smoking rates were reduced by 32.3%. 10 years after e-cigarettes marketing, uh, market emergence, they uh, decreased by 45.9%. Right. And California, if you go down to, yeah, so you can see, too, where it spikes up. So those are the smoking rates. The first graph is about 18, 24-year-olds. You see, I mean, it was headed down. I mean, it kept decreasing, decreasing until 2017, and then it spikes up with the youth vaping epidemic in 2018. But then it goes back down. So, but it'd be right. interesting to see the 2020 numbers, um, especially after the whole e scare. Right. And then my favorite graph. Because it shows how much they don't spend. <laughs> <laughs> Man, this is an amazing amount of work. I, I highly recommend um, people to go to it. Now, if you, if you I'm sure, can you just probably easily Google it? But it's up on RegWatch. If you want to find it, just go to regulatorwatch.com. It's uh, Tobacco and Vaping 101, 50 State Analysis. I'm sure just a simple Google uh, yeah. and you'll find it. So it's let me just... 
Let me ask you one last question with regards to the master settlement agreement. Now, I hate to use the word conspiracy, but there there is you know a fairly decently elaborated and, and intricate kind of explanation and accusation about what's going on with the master settlement. And you know, I don't want to get into the bond stuff and everything else. I think there is some validity there and so forth. I don't want to undermine what people believe with the MSA. I just think that it's pretty complicated. But what I do know is that there is a tobacco control infrastructure, an industry, right? A, a, a hundreds of millions, if not at least over a billion dollar industry, right? That every year is supported by all of this money coming in. So there needs to be a certain amount of structural smoking that exists in place in order to support that industry. And as the smoking goes down, well, maybe they're just pulling vaping and maybe they're just going to keep it going enough that, that it can help replace some of the smoking for, you know, the money they need to support that industry. However, when you look at what's going really going on, it looks like they're really choking vaping off. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Well, the Center for Tobacco Products at the FDA is completely funded by user fees on cigarette products. And that's from a government accounting office uh, or report, uh, which was kind of frightening. Um, but yeah, you've got a lot of these that are based off of uh, Minnesota. Uh, their tobacco control group is the right now is was based off of the MSA and that, that funding. Um, what a lot of people don't realize is the MSA is that you know, oh, all these attorney generals thought that they like pulled one over on on cigarettes and tobacco companies, but the tobacco companies literally pushed off the price, all the fees associated with the MSA under the consumers. Uh, so it's kind of interesting, but there is a lot of, I think there's a lot of money, honestly, and both like people smoking, but also all of the issues that go with smoking. I think a lot of these tobacco control groups are getting money from, you know, treating what, uh, what, what is it called? Uh, CP, not CPD. I can't think of it. Chronic pulmonary disorder yeah, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, now I can't uh, remember what it is. Yeah, uh, I can't remember. <laughs> oh, Skip Murray was watching but, it. She texts me right now. But yeah, yeah the chronic COP. Never use an acronym if you don't have it right, because then you'll just Im Im embed it. Yeah. Um, COPD. COPD, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you know, I think that they get a lot of money out of that. And what's associated, you know, uh, smoking related, you know, health illnesses. Um, but I do think, yeah, there's some funding. I think there, I don't know, like what I've looked, I looked at all the, like the MSA numbers and like, you know, the cigarette tax numbers. And that's still, I mean, they're still getting a lot of money. And if they're not, they just increase the prices. But even the MSA payments have remained relatively stable, which is kind of weird. But then so, you're also getting influxes of money. I think Michigan just got a, another MSA payment like a, a week ago or something. So it's. It's yeah, in perpetuity. It's, I mean, it's in perpetuity, isn't forever. it? These payments. Yep. It's in forever. Yeah. And That's there's also for like, I, I don't know. And don't quote me on this. Like the ICOS, like I think ICOS is subject to the MSA, but I'm not entirely sure. So like the heat not burn. Um, and that's going to be the interesting thing is when some of these lawmakers like try to apply the MSA to e-cigarette products. And it's like, no, 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 you can't do it. They weren't, these weren't, I don't even think they could do it because they're not, the MSA doesn't apply to new tobacco companies. It only applies to those tobacco companies that were part of the lawsuits. Right. Yes, exactly. So yeah. 
you know, I'm, I think we're done on that topic because there's nothing more that we can do except for cry. Um, yeah. But I'm going to bring us to a topic now, though, that is much worse. And that is Mr. Michael Bloomberg. What do you think? Oh, Mr. Overlord wants to control everything uh, and, and has no problem doing it in unscrupulous ways. Uh, the, the Philippines, I mean, they're still trying to find answers um, as uh, two of the Congress uh, people just sent another letter on the Philippines FDA, which apparently some of the people took money from them when they decided to go ban heat, not burn and um, there, he's also been, there's some other countries, um, Mexico, Ukraine, that they're looking into the way that they've, the Bloomberg Foundation has given money. Um, and Bloomberg just, uh, his whole idea is to either ban it or tax it, you know, into oblivion. Um, and it's an, and does not have any, you know, he follows the WHO and they don't accept anything as far as tobacco harm reduction. So then he's really looked at it. I went the $159 million that he gave out in what, 2019 to do the so-called youth vaping epidemic. Yeah. Bloomberg's a D bag. That's the best way to like kind of put it. Sorry Ooh. if I can say that out loud. Well, I don't, I think it was uh, descriptive, but not really, not really too descriptive. So that was good. Um, yeah. It's, it's <sighs> what bothers me so much is the arrogance uh behind the the thought that it's okay to go into third world countries essentially and say you don't have the resources you don't have the acuum you don't have the infrastructure you don't have any of the first world um tools that would allow you to regulate a product like this so instead you have to just ban it and if you do we'll give you a bunch of money and a bunch of glory yeah exactly or or perpetuating this whole you're going to have a youth vaping epidemic when they already have a adult smoking epidemic going on um it's just amazing um you know and to see i i know when i looked at the philippines too like they've got like they've got like an equivalent of a campaign to, for tobacco free kids out there that's 100 percent funded by bloomberg um and it's just I've done a little bit of research. It's interesting. I've done. I'm doing, you know, more consumer issues at TPA. So one of the things is uh, sugar taxes. As I've been looking into, and oh, that's another Bloomberg one. And you're seeing the same similarities, you know, on this whole like either ban it or you know tax once again tax it out of oblivion. Um, and I'm I'm hoping with like you know it's you know, especially with looking at the UK that might emerge as like the world leader of tobacco harm reduction products that there will be a little bit more like countries will start looking into their associations with Bloomberg. Um, you know, I don't think, I think in America we have it a little bit better that like our, like the CDC isn't getting paid for by Bloomberg. Not yet anyways, you know, but we're in a weird time now. It could happen and the FDA, you know, um, but I do think that there are actors in play um, that, you know, have some influence over it. Well, the CDC, do they not have uh, that charity arm or that private oh, they do, Yeah, yeah, they do have the charity arm, but and that, that probably has Bloomberg money. I've never looked that much into Bloomberg in the States besides the like campaign for tobacco-free kids and all, because those ones tend to be, you know, I didn't realize the CDC was an enemy of ours until literally the eval-i stuff came out and they quit, they wouldn't report on like really what was causing it. Um, 
So that that might be something I might have to go look into. Thank you, Brent, for putting more work on my plate. <laughs> and uh, well, we'll have you back on once you've finished uh, that research. Um, oh, yeah. And so last, the last topic I want to do um, with you is Health Canada and the things that are going yeah. on in Canada. Canada, first world country, major regulator, very, very important. And they went through a process, you know, almost five years, you know, scientific review, presentations, stakeholder meetings, tons of public consultation. They listened to the anti-vaping forces. The parliament got involved. They wrote a law. They passed the law. They made vaping legal. And within six months after the law going into effect, they started unwinding the regulation based on the moral panic of uh, the youth vaping. And then, of course, he valley hit. What do you make of that? That they should, like, pay attention to stuff going on in their own borders and not make policy based off of what's going on in America. Um, I was kind of really surprised to see what was coming out of Canada, especially, like, harm reduction as far as the heroin you know epidemic y'all have been pretty like revolutionary on that you know and then stuff as far as like having that available to people to see them do really like a, a, a about face um who is what i can think of was what they're trying to do with it um and controlling for the industry um i know that the, the nicotine cap was the big thing and i i know everyone kind of looks at like england but I, once again it comes down to like prohibition at this point like you already have it out on the market you can't bring it back in um and then the possible flavor bans kind of frightening and especially i mean flavor art that's a big that's a big you know flavor house company you know for for a lot of people in the states too um it's and you guys have a lot of vapors from what I was reading out on the survey that just came out. Um, and as well as like, and you don't seem to have that many, it's not as high as the youth usage out in the States is, but it's still kind of higher than, you know, what we don't want any kids vaping. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it goes, but I know you guys have like a powerhouse team out there that's really doing a lot of work. I know every other day I read something in the PR newswire with what, you know, one of the associations coming out against everything. So keeping that narrative going is definitely to show that like, Hey, adults have quit smoking. Fantastic. Keep on with it. Well, that's excellent. That's excellent to hear because of course you're down in the States and I know that this is your area of interest, but you know, the U S is so big and the media is so large and there's so many things to concentrate on. So for you to be able to, for you to see and comment that there is, seems to be a lot of activity coming from the Canadian Vaping Association and VITA and, you know, Rights for Vapors and all of the other groups yep. here in Canada, that's excellent to hear that. Yeah, I can't get all the names right because there's so many of the groups doing it, but I keep seeing all the stuff. So I'm like, yes, keep going on with that and just putting pressure, you know, to the lawmakers. Um Though, like I've always what I've always looked at with the states too, and like Canada, you guys got like provinces, right? Is that what they're called? Yes. Um, okay, so I mean, I've always been at least with out in the United States that okay, let's say the federal government does screw us over. If you've done well enough in your state, heck, you might just be able to like have like oh, you're the only state that has flavored vapes, you know? Um, like building up the local relationships, like all politics is local. And if you can show your local people more, you're going to have a stronger voice when it does happen at the national level, um, is always my opinion on it. Well, I mean, that's totally true. Um, you got to hit it all, all levels. And, you know, oh, the, yeah. 
the enemies to vaping, they're hitting you on every single level. They've got local, they've got provincial, they've got federal. So unless you're doing the same thing, you're kind of getting lost. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and yeah, I just think and it helps you get more allies. Um, and also the local level, you can make a little bit more change, too, because they, they can see you. Um, I always think of right now Representative Julie Casimiro out of Rhode Island. She actually, like two years ago, sponsored a flavor ban bill and somebody like went crazy with her on Twitter. So she finally showed up and went to his vape shop and completely changed her mind and everything. And she's actually used my research. So, you know, and everything. So I'm always like, I always give her a shout out and stuff. And, and it's funny because she's a Democrat. She's like the majority leader or something like she's high ranking Democrat, too. But like she understood like once she got into it and. I think ultimately right now I'm like so much of, you know, between lawmakers, the the Karen moms, you know, that are worried about their kids vaping um, as this narrative of, you know, the smokers that, you know, have used these to quit smoking. And this was the only product that was able to do it for them. Do you know, um, and do, you know do you know if that was White Horse Vapors in Rhode Island? I don't know. Actually, it might have been. I have like I probably I have no idea. Like it was. Um, yeah, it was some, some very good active, some very good activists there. Yeah. And, and she's, she's introduced a bill this year because Rhode Island is under the flavor ban. She fought against it. She wrote up as last year when it was going through or like in 2019 when it was going through and stuff, um, after like pulling her name off of it and everything. And, uh, now she's introduced a bill to, um, allowed in like age restricted stores, which I'm against. Okay. Like if you're going to have cigarettes in the store, there should be an e-cigarette there. But if it means that there's going to be flavors back in Rhode Island, then fine. I'll acquiesce, um, you know, on that one. But um, it's I think it's a good I think it's a powerful message. Um, and if we could get like 100 of her in the States, oof, you know, that would be amazing. I'm still trying to, like, work out a ragtag team of lawmakers that are pro vapors, you know, from all sides of the aisle and be like, here, let's follow you there. These people are going crazy. Well, we need somebody to do that corralling. Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, excellent. Just hang right there for a second. And that is it for this edition of Reg Watch. Before you head off, please go over to support.regulatorwatch.com and consider making a financial contribution to our coverage. You should also note that on May 30th, Reg Watch, uh, working with Rice for Vapors um, and the World Vapors Alliance, um, we're going to be hosting uh, three hours live for the North American coverage for World Vape Day. So uh, tune into that. I'll have the full times and everything else out there and everybody will be able to see that. So it should be good. Three hours live. Some of our stuff's going to be taped. So we'll have some really, really good stuff. And uh, make sure you like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. For RegulatorWatch.com, I'm Brent Stafford.